Little by little, we will overcome. Lapel mic, I have to make sure that's turned on this time. That would be handy. There we go. Okay, lapel mic on, this mic on, radio is turned off, CD computer are doing their thing, and here we go. How about that? So when I turn this way, you can still hear me, huh? Hi. Wow. January 3rd, it is, it is, it is, it is, 2010, man, 2010. Uh, Just think, 10 years ago, we were all buying generators from Costco. I have mine. It still has gas in it. We did add, yeah, don't laugh, we added Staybill. That's good for how many years, Ken? Four? Four. <laughs> I was hoping for four. So I'll have to drain the whole system out one of these days. But we all ran to Costco and bought computers, I mean, uh, com- uh, not computers, uh, bought generators, because we thought the computers would all be destroyed. And it is hard to believe that this is January 3rd, 2010 for me, especially when I look back at where this church started every time this happens. We began, I think, in October of 97. I have to look at it again. It's when the incorporations went. And then we, uh, we, began, we started, I think, February um, in 98 officially, even though we had some services prior to that. But here we are, 2010, January, so I kind of think about the start all the time, and it really is an extraordinary thing to see the little journey that we have had here, especially lately, huh? Okay, here we go, January 3rd, 2010, lecture discussion number 7, number 7 on Zechariah 11, Matthew 12, Revelation 17 and 18, and of course the hardening of the Pharaoh's heart, all of that is in the Zechariah 11 template or canopy, if you will. And uh, it's true. Yes, indeed, we have finally gotten through the darkness of no dry erase board. We did that last week. And we can return to whence we came, which is back to uh, Zechariah 11. And again, this is number seven. If you remember number six... Uh, and most of you probably don't. It was quite a while ago. But we began in Proverbs 6. We worked our way through Matthew 12. We ended up in Zechariah 11, Matthew 27, and headed towards Revelation 17. Now, I said all of that really for who? For you guys? No, you're just putting up with it. Who am I saying that for? And that's all the people that get the CDs. Yes, hi, all the people that get the CDs. Say hi. Hi back. And there's some folks on iTunes now that get uh, iTunes downloaded, and I don't know how to get there. Lori does. She has showed me. A couple of you do, but it's not something that I look at, but there are some that do that. And so uh, occasionally i got to make uh, specific references and time marks for these folks because it is easy to get lost here. It's easy when you are physically present and you can see what I write down. And it's, um, it's really easy for those who are in remote locations that are listening to us, like, say, California. It used to be part of the United States. And Texas, I'm kidding. No, now I'll get, I'll get hate mail for that one. That's for Lori's parents. But we also have a lot of folks in Texas and Washington, D.C., and uh, all over the place. And so it's hard for them because they can only imagine how beautiful the platinum dry erase board looks. And you can see it. So we have to help them keep track. Okay, we have gotten here, and here today is Revelation 17 because of what? What gets us to Revelation 17? I'm going to try to do something for you today. I am going to try to give you the wisdom of the 666. That's what I'm going to try to do. Understanding the 666 is very, very important. And most of the time, it's all, it's, uh, they do it with the mathematics, trying to figure out the number of the name of the man and all of that. And I think that's fine, and I think that's probably true. But I think it's far more than just the math of taking the Hebrew gematria and figuring out what the number is, because we did that with Henry Kissinger. You all remember that? We did it with Kennedy. We've done it with everybody. We have pictures of Clinton where he looks like Nero, and we're constantly trying to figure out the number of the name. And that's important, but I think it's far more significant, that 666, than just the, the addition of it all. And I'm a math guy, as you know. But we got here to Revelation 17 because I'm trying to give you an understanding of what that 666 is. And then I also want you to know that we got here because of what? 
Judas. Judas threw money. He threw pieces of silver. He threw 30 pieces of silver at the potter in the temple. And I want you to know why he did it. Because it wasn't an accident. It wasn't some happenstance moment. It wasn't some he was feeling sad moment either. He did it on purpose. It was intended. It was planned. He knew what he was doing. And I can prove it. I hope I can prove it today, if not next week. So ultimately, we are asking, why did Judas throw the wages of the good shepherd? Because he knew that they were the wages of the good shepherd. And he threw them. Why didn't Christ throw the wages of the good shepherd? Here's a better question. Why did Christ allow Judas to throw the 30 pieces of silver at the pot? That's a very important question, and that sends us through Revelation 17. And I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I'm going to prove to you, I hope, I think I can very easily, uh, at least uh, maybe not today again. But when Judas threw that money, who was standing right there? Christ was standing right there. They were side by side in front of the Pharisees. The Pharisees had Christ. They were attempting to slap him around. Notice how I say attempting, because he's who? He's God. Did they know it? No. And there's Judas. Did they know who Judas was? No, they didn't. They thought they did. They had some inkling of who he was, but a full understanding of who he was, I don't believe they had. Some will disagree with me. Some will think that the Pharisees were very much understanding of who Judas is. Anyway, Matthew 27, where Judas throws that money, is a great is a place of great difficulty for Bible students. And significant errors are made in Matthew 27 over and over again, usually because two pieces are disregarded. And I've just kind of gone over one of them. That's Zechariah 11. If you have Judas throwing the money and you're not simultaneously reading Zechariah 11, you will not understand why he did it. And you won't understand why Christ let him do it. And you'll miss the whole purpose of what Judas is trying to accomplish there. The other thing that is missing there is John 13, 27. And that, of course, is what? That's where Satan enters Judas. And the implications of Satan himself entering Judas are immense. Where the enormity of it is so often missed, neglected, and it's extraordinary. Because it's a big deal, and you've heard me go on it for quite a while. I've gone on it over the years. I rarely let it go by when we're in, in any kind of subject that touches it, because I want you, everybody listening to me, to know how, how what the magnitude of Satan himself entering into Judas is. Judas is transformed at that moment. And all of Satan's power and wisdom is combined, it pours into Judas and combines with him. And Judas then becomes the most powerful, the most evil of any created human. You notice how I said that, created human. Do you see that he is now a counterfeit what? Yes, he is a, he is a counterfeit Christ. It is the counterfeit of mystery number one, which is God and humanity joined together God adding humanity. Satan can't complete that. He cannot do that. But he can join with humanity. God adds humanity. Christ is God. The the perfect humanity of Christ. But you see Satan counterfeiting mystery number one. The mystery of the incarnation. And immediately everyone should ask, why did Judas and Satan do this now at this particular time? You have to go back through the Bible and figure out exactly when... And there's controversy here because of Luke 22.3 and John 13.27. Some theologians will say there's two possessions of Judas. I don't think that that will fit, but uh, we'll have to get through that at some time. Uh, Again, not today. I've done it in the past, I believe. I hope. In any event... uh, I forgot my diet soda today. I have, I hate to say this, I have poison. Because there wasn't any Diet Coke. Yeah, Pepsi. Spelled P-O-I-S-O-N. Pepsi. That's what I have. That is quite the sacrifice for me. But why 
now at this time, that's why I'm saying you have to go back and look at the anatomy of Satan and Judas and when they made their move. And Christ, of course, knew exactly when they, because he's God. He saw Satan entering. Why? How did he see it? He's God. And come on. What did they do it? What are they preparing for? Why at that particular time did Satan enter into Judas? What did they do after Satan was in Judas? When did Satan leave Judas? At what moment? So you can, it's a wonderful study. You can take Judas and put him down and figure out exactly what happened before Satan was there, what happened after Satan was there, when did Satan leave? What happened after he left? And it's a very complicated subject, but one worth your while. Now, I have said many, many times that Judas slash Satan had obviously read and reread and studied and studied and studied Zechariah 11 because Judas plays it out in Matthew 27. Judas knew very well what, Ma- what Zechariah 11 said. They knew what was meant by the throwing of the 30 pieces. They got possession of the 30 pieces. You see, if you read Je- Zechariah 11, who's supposed to get possession? Or what does it seem like? It seems like the good shepherd gets possession of those wages. That's his wages for doing what? For tending the sheep. Who's the sheep? Israel. That's his wages, and they count out 30 pieces. And he throws, those wages are thrown to the potter. Judas got control of those wages. That was not an accident. That's 30 pieces. Who do you think decided how much money to give Judas? Do you think the Pharisees decided that? Judas decided that. He wanted those 30 pieces of silver. Both sides knew Zechariah 11 was going on. It's not in a vacuum. It's very important. They knew the prophetic implications of the silver. They knew the good shepherd, foolish shepherd, or idle shepherd symbolism. They understood some of Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. And and Satan and Judas did. Not understanding all of Daniel 2 and all of Daniel 7 resulted in their John 13:27 mistake. Notice how I say that. Satan enters into Judas and they they jumped the gun a little bit. They moved too fast. They saw, thought something was going to happen and it did not happen. <clears throat> if they had had access to Revelation 17 and Revelation 18 and Revelation 12 and Revelation 13, um but they couldn't have had that because it wasn't written yet. Who wrote that? The Apostle John. That wasn't written until John is in exile. So all they had was uh, essentially Zechariah 11 to go on and a little bit of Daniel, the 2 and 7, which I don't think they understood. I think they really wanted to understand it, but that was hidden from them. And that gives you, by the way, some, in, some insight as to what was going on when Daniel and Gabriel are together, when you start connecting all your Gabriel mosses. But that's another story, too. But when they get Revelation 17, 18, 12, and 13, then the second time this happens, the second time that Satan enters a man, Satan knows something now. He knows what the correct time is. He has the time down now. He knows what's going to happen. He even says so. Satan knows what time it is. He knows how much time he has left. He knows. He's not guessing anymore. See... What Satan didn't get, what lots of people don't get, I'm going to get rid of the Babylons a little bit today because we're going to do, we'll come back to the Babylons as the weeks come along here. But you see, 586, what happened in 586 B.C.? Got to know what happened. That's right, Jerusalem is effectively destroyed by the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar seizes all the priesthood, he seizes everybody, the ones he allows them to live, and he carries them back into exile, if you will, into captivity in Babylon, and that starts something. What does that start? Well, it is, but that starts the age of the Gentiles. Okay? So, Nebuchadnezzar starts the age of the Gentiles. Now, Christ is comes on the fourth day crucified approximately 600 years later and what does that start? Something that Satan didn't know. Satan knew the age of the Gentiles was coming. 
So you have to ask, why did he enter into Jerusalem? I'm sorry, why did he enter into Judas? Boy, I said that badly. Why did Satan enter into Judas? What did he think was going to happen? And it didn't happen. Did he think the crucifixion was going to happen? I don't believe he did. The crucifixion causes something. See, this is Matthew 12. That's why when I always say we're going to study, we're going to study Zechariah 11, Matthew 27, Matthew 12, Revelation 17. You see how they start to fit together? Matthew 12 is the rejection of the Messiahship of Christ on the basis that he has Satan inside of him. Who's Satan really inside of? Judas. So Matthew 12 causes something. What does it cause? It causes essentially what's called the great parentheses. What is the great parentheses? That is the church age of the gathering. Thank you for, for wonderful stuff. That is the church age. For those of you who are listening, I got real coke. See, if you whine, things happen. The church age. What ends the church age? Well, some will say the rapture, and I don't disagree. We have a signing of the covenant which uh, between Israel, or the confirming of the covenant between Israel and the Antichrist, and that starts the seven-year tribulation. Okay? Now, if you want to end the church age on the rapture, you certainly can, but the age of the Gentiles ends here. So Satan is paying attention to the age of the Gentiles. He's paying attention to when Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem and put it into captivity, the Babylonian captivity, and when that will all end. And now, eventually, Satan is going to know the exact time that the tribulation begins. Yes? Um... Matthew fifteen sixteen. Go ahead and help me more. Preach the gospel. Well, this is the the church age is the is the preaching of the gospel, and it is the gathering of the church, and the church is of course symbolized by a what? A woman in what kind of garb? White. Why is she in white? What does white have to do anything? Because she's a virgin, and she's pure, and she is taken up to the judgment seat of Christ and presented to Christ, okay? Keep that in your head, because we're going to get back to that. But anyway, Satan is, because he, he's aware of the age of the Gentiles, he's now aware of the church age. I don't believe he was at the time of the crucifixion of Christ. No prophet saw the church age. That was something revealed to Paul. And so Satan couldn't have possibly have known it. It caught him completely by surprise. And so that's why I say he made a mistake in John 13, 27. What was that mistake? He enters into Judas. It works out fine for him. Yes? Do you think also that Satan didn't think that the job was going to get done? I mean, he escaped care and he escaped the Pharisees. Uh, you know, here's his last I don't disagree at all because he makes a superhuman, if you will, evil man to confront the Christ. Now, does he know the Christ is God himself in the flesh? I think that's a... Eventually he gets that figured out. When he has it is, a, is up to debate, but I think, as you know, you heard my Matthew 4, he begins to figure it out at Matthew 4. Anyway, uh, he makes a decision to go into Judas because he was expecting something. He was not expecting the church age. What was he expecting? It's a very important question. So, okay. Eventually, though, now, when this church age ends and the age of the Gentiles is wrapping up, Satan will be able to tell time, and now is when he calls the beast from the abyss. And that's a very important thing. That's We're headed to Revelation 17 in just a second. He calls out the beast from the abyss. And by the way, what's the abyss? The abyss is the place for who? Fallen angels. So what's the obvious question right off the bat? How is it that a man, the beast, 
is in the abyss? That's your first obvious question. He unqualified. He's not a fallen angel. Or maybe he is. If he is, how does he qualify to be in the abyss? How did he get to be something other than just a man? That's a very important question. The beast is a man. How did this man get confined in the abyss? I'm getting a little ahead, and we're going to read Revelation 17. And let me say this about Revelation 17. This is the most complicated of all of the book of Revelation, and that's saying something. This ain't going to be no simple addition and subtraction today. It's going to be Chinese quadratic equations. So it's a good thing we have the platinum model dry erase board. So let's look at Revelation 17 and see what it is. Start at verse 1. We're going to read it all. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked to me. The me in this is John the Apostle, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Okay, so he carried me away in the wilderness, uh, carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name that was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. Now, that's an incredible statement right there, because who wrote it? John the Apostle. How much wisdom he got? He's got a lot. And he's stunned by this. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? You shouldn't be marveling. This should be a piece of cake for you. I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast that carries her, which has seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see that the beast, see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mounds on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has yet to come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth, and is the seven, and is of the seven, and is going to perdition. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they they receive authority for one hour as kings of, with the beast. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the lamb, and the lamb will overcome him, for he is. Duh. Sure he's going to overcome him. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings. He's God. And those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. Then he said to me, The waters which you saw are where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind, and to give their kingdom to the beast." Until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Okay. First off, as many of you know, you solve Revelation 17 by going back to Daniel 2. Because Revelation 17 is both a history of the age of the Gentiles and a prophecy. Okay. So... You have to go back to the beginning, the 586, and this, and this dream that is given to Nebuchadnezzar, and that helps you solve Revelation 17. I didn't say it was easy, did it? The key to understanding how Revelation 17 fits with Daniel, and therefore now Daniel 7, because Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 explain Revelation 17, that's to keep at the forefront that the Apostle John was used by the Holy Spirit to write Revelation 17. 
So the first thing you have to know is that John wrote 17 of Revelation. They think, most think, that he wrote it during Domitian, Emperor Domitian, AD 81 to 96. Some say Nero, which would have put it back to 54 to 68. So he wrote it, AD. He wrote it, Christ crucified, if you will, approximately 29 AD. He wrote it anywhere from uh, 55 to 90 AD. So very important that you know that John wrote it, and that's when he wrote it. If you have that, now you've got a place to start and you can get somewhere. John knew things. And so we have to know what John's life experiences are, and, and they become critical components to understanding what he wrote. Because John, uh, what John saw when he was alive is critical, crucial information. And having said that, let's note a couple of things. Here we go. This is a great harlot. In the King James, this woman is called a whore. A great whore. Do they have it right in the King James? Absolutely they do. The strongest possible language you can imagine. The King James, absolutely, I believe, is perfect here. This woman is a great whore. So we should uh, immediately put her side by side, the virgin of the church. We have the white, pure, holy virgin that is gathered in the church age, and we have this harlot, this whore, that is in contrast. And you should immediately see the counterfeit, because Satan mimics God's system, doesn't he? Therefore, the great whore, a woman, stands in contrast, but is actually a fake. She's a fake. And so you have this choosing that which is godly, God-designed, or choose the fake, or choose the fraud. So choose the counterfeit, or choose the truth. That is what's happening here. So this, this woman represents a system, and that's where we go back to last week, ecclesiastical Babylon. She represents ecclesiastical Babylon. She represents at the end of the age, there is going to be a religious system that is centered in Babylon, either literally or symbolically, and I will say literally it is centered in Babylon. Why does Satan, at the end of the age, want a church that mimics the church that is raptured out? Also, notice that the adulteress is identified as a mystery, mystery Babylon. Okay? Mystery Babylon the Great. The angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery. Why is she a mystery? What's so mysterious about her? Last Sunday, for those of you who were here, you remember me talking about, I keep saying this. I keep saying mystery number one. What is mystery number one? Mystery number one is the incarnation. Then I say, what other mysteries do we have to now know? Mystery number ten. What is mystery number ten? What's mystery number 10? I am putting the incarnation alongside of mystery number 10. Why do I think mystery number 10? Mystery number 10 is the mystery of the church, right? Hopefully you'll start to remember. Don't feel bad if you don't. Takes a while. But notice that I put last week mystery number 1 alongside of mystery number 10. And then what did I do? What other mysteries did I put up last week? I put mystery number 8... Of the eleven mysteries, I put mystery number eight along with mystery what? Number nine. Okay? And so I started to say to you there was a relationship between one and ten, a relationship between eight and nine, and then a relationship between one and ten and eight and nine. What is eight? Does that make any sense to anybody but me? Okay, what is mystery number eight? It is the mystery of the Antichrist, or the mystery of the man of sin. What is mystery number nine? It is the mystery of ecclesiastical Babylon, or the mystery of Babylon the Great. So do you see now, I hope, mystery number one is the mystery of the Incarnation. Do you see how it corresponds to the man of sin, the fake Incarnation, or the counterfeit Christ? This is the mystery of the pure virgin church gathered by God. This is the mystery of Babylon, the harlot or the whore. So here are the counterfeits to these. If I, 
these have a relationship because this one is on top of this one. The, bar, the harlot is on top of the Antichrist, if you will, the beast. Now, some will disagree. Some will say the beast is also a system. We'll get into that in a minute. But I have the harlot or the uh, sitting on or ecclesiastical Babylon sitting on top of the Antichrist in Revelation 17. So I have the relationship there between one and ten, the church in Christ. Okay. Hopefully that makes a little sense to you, and you'll understand why those all fit together, and we can keep going now. Mystery number one, mystery number ten. It's the holy thing, the mystery of godliness. And mystery number 10, the bride of Christ, and they join together. And their counterparts in the satanic deception, mysteries number 8 and number 9, which is the man of sin and the great whore. Okay? The mystery of the Antichrist starts where in the Bible? Genesis 3.15. It does. It's called the seed of the serpent. The man of sin is called the seed of the serpent. God is called the seed of the woman. Right? So, now, note this verse. This is very difficult. Here's where I need to spend. I can't. So I'll have to erase. We're going to go to 17.8 now. Very important verse. Many of you have heard me do it before. So you might have a heads up here. I hope you do. If you don't, Come and see me afterwards, and I'll try to pound it in for you. This is an enigmatic verse and very difficult. Verse 8. The beast that you saw was. So what did we learn right there? The beast, the beast that you saw, he, the angel, was going to explain this mystery of the harlot sitting on top of the beast to John, and the angel is saying to him, it shouldn't be a mystery to you. You should understand this. This should be a piece of cake for you. The beast that you saw was who's the beast? Is the man of sin mystery number eight? He's number eight. Who is the you in the sentence? John the Apostle. When did John write Revelation? 55 to 90. The beast that you saw, John, was. John saw who? He saw the beast. What's the obvious question? John saw the Antichrist. He saw the man of sin. What's the obvious question? Now, I know there's some disagreement with this, but don't worry about it. I'll I'll destroy those who disagree with me here in a minute. It's a piece of cake, really. It's not that hard. Don't be too proud of me. The beast that John saw was. The Apostle John saw the Antichrist. Obvious question. What's the obvious question? When... Don't get ahead of the obvious questions. When, When did John, the Apostle... See the beast. When did he? John died somewhere in here. When did he see the beast? He obviously had seen the beast when he had written this at some point in his life. It's very important. So that's saying that the man of sin was was what? He was alive. He was on the earth at the time that John was the apostle, doesn't it? If that is the correct interpretation, I believe it is. So there's your obvious question. When did it happen? Then the next obvious question is, who is the Antichrist that John saw? How is it that John and the Antichrist got together? What was the beast doing when John saw him? How many times did John see him? Did John know it was the beast? I I believe Bonnie's absolutely correct. John didn't know. That's why the angel says to him, "Why why did you marvel? When you see the harlot sitting on top of the beast. John, you should have known. Next obvious question. How many comings of Christ do I have? Two. I have the first coming of Christ where he comes in mercy, comes in salvation, comes to heal, comes to save. Then I have the second, the return of Christ, which is what? Judgment. 
have two comings of Christ. Did Satan know that? Did he know there was going to be two advents? It, with a great parenthesis in between? The gathering of the church age? Did he know that? Next, next obvious question. If there's two comings of Christ, how many comings of Antichrist will I have? Would it be logical that I'd also have two? Did Satan know that he was going to have two comings of the Antichrist? Or was that a surprise with him? Would Satan copy the two advents of Christ with two advents of the Antichrist? Did, did he know, as I said, that there were going to be two comings? Or here's the better question. How fast did Judas slash Satan figure out Daniel 2 and Daniel 7? Because that's ultimately where you're going to go when you answer that question about why, uh, how Satan and Judas responded. See, Satan and Judas respond. They are not proactive here. They tried to be proactive. They tried to get their hands on the 30 pieces of silver, and they did. And they threw the 30 pieces of silver. They wanted to be proactive in that because they wanted that element of Zechariah 11 to apply to them. But the truth is, is they're really what? Reactive. Because who are they battling with? Uh, an outside of time, creator of time, God in the flesh. Did they know that? See, when it's the Nixon question. What did Satan know and when did he know it? Not that Nixon is Satan, but you understand the question, I hope. Anyway, John saw the beast who was. Who was. So, when John, John saw the beast and now what is the beast? He was. The beast is was at the time John wrote this. So during John's life, he saw the beast, but the beast now is was. What is was? I'm going to tell you that was is dead. Okay? There's a bunch of obvious questions. Because when I'm was, I'm going to be dead. So I'm assuming that was means dead. Let me read it again. The beast that you saw was and is not. So is not. So you saw him, and now he is not. So I guess is not would be better definition of dead. So the beast that you saw, John, is not. He was, you saw him, and now he is not. What's the obvious question here? What happened to the beast? How do you kill the Antichrist? Who kills the Antichrist in the battle of Armageddon in Revelation 19? God does. Jesus Christ does. How you kill the beast? Is it easy? Then it ain't. So if the beast was, and now is not, is dead, how did he die? And then it says, and will ascend out. So, the beast is dead, but he's going to ascend. Or if he's not dead, and there is a position that says he's not dead, he's just confined. So he was on the earth, you saw him, and now he's not on the earth instead of dead. We can get rid of dead if you like. So he might have been dead, but he isn't dead now. He's someplace, and he's going to come out of where he is. He will ascend. Will ascend. What's the obvious question now? When will he ascend? The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend. And where is he coming out of? He's coming out of the bottomless pit, or also called the abyss. What is the bottomless pit? What is the abyss? That is the place for fallen angels. What's the obvious question? How does he get there? Why is he there? Why is the man, the beast, in the place for fallen angels? Matthew Cobb is here. He'd jump up and down and tell you. He's not here. Yes? What's that? Are we talking about a place confined to the angels of the Yes. That's correct. It's a specific place for fallen angels. And you see it really in, in uh, Matthew 8 with the demoniac. and the, 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 he, Christ asked them an incredible question. What's your name? Does Christ know their name? Did they tell him the truth? No, they answer back what? Legion. There's a whole bunch of them in there. 
He knows how many are in there. He knows their names. He made them. They know he knows. Everybody knows. They lie. I expect that. And they say, don't put us where? Don't put us someplace. Whenever you do Christ, don't put us someplace. Where is it that he's going to put them? He's going to put them in the abyss. They don't want to go to the abyss. Hang on, hang on, because I'm running out of time. I know. I've got to hurry. It's going to be close. He's going to put those, uh, those people or those uh, fallen angels that are inside the demoniac. By the way, how many demoniacs are there? There's two. We talk about, never mind. How come there's only one when there's two? No, that's another story. One, one demoniac does something, the other one does something else, and each gospel focuses on one. And you don't always find the story of the other one unless you look at it carefully. But those, uh, those fallen angels inside the demoniac, they say to Christ, don't send us to the abyss. Whatever you do, please don't send us to the abyss. Because they recognize Christ as having the power to send them to the abyss, which I would expect them to recognize because of Matthew 4. Right? They were there. They know he can say, be gone, and they go. Don't send us to the abyss. Don't want to go there. And so, then they make a negotiation with him. What do they say? We'll take the pigs. So, he lets them go into the pigs. What do the pigs do? They run to the water and drown. Why do they run to the water and drown? Because, where's the abyss? You've all seen the movie. It's at the bottom of the ocean, right? Bottomless pit. I'd expect the pigs to run to water. Pigs are smart. Okay, more obvious questions. When did the first coming of the Antichrist end? When did the beast, the Antichrist, go to the bottomless pit? When does the Antichrist ascend out of the bottomless pit? When does the Antichrist then go to perdition? Because if you read it again, I hope you did, perdition. That's where he eventually ends up. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. So why is he going to perdition? Where is perdition? And what does all of that have to do with 666? Because that's where we're going to end up. Now these are fun questions, and and at least I think they're fun. And if you think so, that they're also fun, then, then you've become weird. And the question now is, were you weird before you came to Cliffside, or did Cliffside make you weird? Now let's add Revelation 12, 1 through 3 to this. And, and so while I'm reading this, you ask yourself, why are we adding Revelation 12, 1 through 3? Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun. Okay, what have we got now? We've got a great sign and we've got a woman, another woman. How many women have we had so far? We've had two. What's the first woman? That is the virgin bride of Christ. What's the second woman? The great harlot, the whore. That is the counterfeit bride, if you will. That is the satanic church, if you will. Now I have a third woman. What's the obvious question? Who is she? A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, what's the next obvious question? What does this have to do with Joseph's dream? And then being with child, what's the next obvious question? Who's the child? She cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign, what does that, by the way, have to do with Genesis 3.15? And what does it have to do with Genesis 3.15? Pain and childbirth, very good. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, when you see behold, what should you do? Oh, man... Something huge is here. A great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten hordes and seven crowns on his head. So I now have how many heads he got? He's got seven heads, this fiery dragon. Who's the dragon? That's Satan. He's got seven heads. How many? What else he got? Ten horns. So he's a what? He's a ten horn. Never mind. Fit in the prime if you thought that was funny. And then what else he got? Seven crowns. That is a description of Satan. Okay, you got that in on the board a little bit. Now let's go to thirteen Revelation. 
Okay, very important verse, 13.1. Then he stood on the sand of the sea. Now, how many of your Bibles have I stood? Okay, I is incorrect. It is he stood. It comes from 17. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Then he stood on the sand of the sea. See, they follow together. They're in context. Most of your Bibles will have in the margin, he stood. And you should change it so that you don't uh, struggle with that as you go through this. Then he stood on the sand of the sea. So Satan is standing on the sand. He's on the beach. What's he doing on the beach? And I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. So what's Satan doing? He is on the sand, he is on the beach, and he is calling the beast out. So he sees sees Satan, John does, calling the beast out of the sea, which would make sense because the beast is where? He's in the abyss, so we've got to get him out of the abyss. Satan has the authority to call the beast out of the abyss. And now we have a description of the beast. Having seven heads and ten horns. So far, so good, right? So far, the beast looks just like Satan. Seven heads and ten horns. But then this. And on his horns, ten crowns, and on his head, a blasphemous name. How many crowns he got? He has ten crowns. So everything works. These two work. This one works. But we get to here and here, and we have a difference. Crowns. So, got that? A great red dragon, Satan, has seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns, and another woman, a great wonder, sun and moon. She has a crown of twelve stars. Who is she? Is she Eve? Is she Israel? Is she the church? Is she Mary? Is she all of that? That Can't get distracted. We've got to go to Revelation 13, 1 through 3. I just did that for people who always want me to do that. He stands. Satan calls the beast out of the abyss, thus answering the question of when... Of seventeen eight. By the way, how did Satan know that he was in the abyss? Does Satan know who he is as well as where he is? And the beast has seven heads, ten horns, and ten crowns. So now we know the Antichrist has ten crowns, the dragon has seven crowns, and that's not the same. So we can learn something really fast. The beast is not the dragon, is he? But he's a man. Though he's very much like the dragon, he is, uh, has a relationship to the dragon. He is, uh, he is related to the dragon. He is the 315 seed of the serpent. So what's the obvious question? When did he become the seed of the serpent? Okay. That shuts me down right there. We have to stop there. We're really close to the end. We only have five more pages, or say an hour to go. I can start, it says right here. And now, start the sermon. All of that was to get you to the sermon. The sermon is Daniel 7 and Daniel 2. Once we get through solving Daniel 7 and Daniel 2, then we will finally know why the foolish shepherd of Zechariah 11 threw the silver instead of the good shepherd. Or to put it another way, what was Judas and Christ doing at Matthew 27? They were side by side, as I said. Okay. So once we get Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, we will solve uh, Matthew 27, which then solves Zechariah 11. And we're in a great place. Um, You now have wisdom that, frankly, I believe very few have. And I'll say this. This is a good place to insert the disclaimer. Hundreds of, if not thousands of, brilliant Bible scholars have devoted years and years and years of their lives attempting to unravel Daniel 2, Daniel 7, and Revelation 12, 13, 17, 18, and Matthew 27. Isaac Newton comes to mind because Isaac Newton, the brilliant physicist, 
believed first and foremost that his most impressive work was his exposition of the book of Revelation. And if you read it, this incredible scientist, this amazing intellect, and he got almost all of it wrong. And, and, and that just tells you how it's going to go. There's a huge mountain, a huge pile of material to study. And obviously, I have sided with those who see Zechariah 11, Matthew 27, Acts 1, 16 through 20. What's that? That's the hanging of Judas. I side with those who see that in Matthew 12 as central to the solution. I, and many of you have heard me say, of no one else all the time with regard to Judas. Of no one else has been called the devil by God himself. Of no one else is it said he went to his own place when he died. Of no one else is it said except Judas by Christ, by that he is the son of perdition. Perdition is only given to Judas by Christ. So many theologians focus on the historical empire prophecies of Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 and they set aside the specific antichrist prophecies in Daniel 9 and I'm going to tell you I, I think it's necessary to separate the beast that is the empire from the beast that is the person and that's what I've just done for you. Because there is a beast that is the system that is the empire and there is the beast that is the, that is the person. And so as you go through Revelation you have to figure out when is it talking about the beast that is the empire and when is it talking about the beast that is the person that is called by the way in the Hebrew way of writing double reference okay so what was the mystery what's the mystery of Revelation 17 see is it a mystery that Babylon is the center of evil by the way why is Babylon the center of evil has it always been the center of evil? If I said Nimrod, what do you say back to me? Babel. Do you know the same word for Tower of Babel is also Tower of Babylon? I have the Tower of Babylon here. I have this ecclesiastical Babylon here. I have the Satan likes Babylon. What's the obvious question? What happened here, baby? What happened here? What happened in Jerusalem? What happened in Babylon? Why do we keep doing this? Next week we'll wrap all that all up. Piece of cake. Easy as pie. And you will have wisdom. That's the plan. Let's rise and be dismissed.